Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earle. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. This is episode 90, and I'm here with Aaron Kent of Broken Sleep Books. Welcome, Aaron. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Of course, we've already, this is so funny because, of course, we've already talked for a few minutes now, but for the audience, this is us just meeting for the first time. <laughs> Yes, this is after a few years of knowing each other. Yeah, that's right. I guess it is a few years. Yeah. So I, basically, I, I have a few questions, but we might go off on a tangent. Uh, so of course, Broken Sleep Books. Uh, we're going to talk about. It. I'm going to also have a link to the in the show notes to the brokensleepbooks.com and any other links you want me to have in there. I can have them to where, your stuff, whatever you like. We can we can add links. We're we're capable of that. The first thing I'd like to ask is is about you. What would you like? I used to I used to do bios. I used to just read off the bio, and then I realized that um, people can already go and find bios and stuff. So instead of that, I just ask uh, what you want listeners to know about you. Now, Danny uh, uh, Spinoza and Kate um, uh, Ciclosi of Gapright Press wanted me to wanted listeners to know how much they like cats. So you never know what people are going to going to say. So with that pressure on you now, what would you like listeners to know about you, Aaron Kent? I am a big cat fan, actually. I prefer them immensely to dogs. We've got two cats, but um, I guess it's important. What's important to me about me? a weird sentence but I like it is um is my working class roots is why I do all of this why I write why I publish why I do all of that and it's because growing up in like in poverty in Red Roof which is the second most deprived area in the whole of Western Europe um and growing up in that way like art the arts aren't a thing they exist, but they aren't a thing because you don't get a chance. You, you're not going to be an artist. Art isn't considered a career. No. It's not considered a viable path. It's not considered an educational choice. It's just the thing that people do, and it's mocked occasionally for the Turner Prize once a year in the paper. That's it. So that's why, that's kind of how I went into this, is that I saw that I enjoyed, I enjoyed writing poetry. I always had. And I wanted to showcase that art was a credible venture to working class people as well. Um, and I guess the second thing is people enjoy how I got into poetry. <laughs> people love that story. I was 16. I was on a school field trip to Austria. And a girl that I had a crush on, her boyfriend, wrote her a poem to take with her to Austria. And she showed it to everybody. Everybody on the trip read that poem. Everyone was like smitten with it. So I wrote for a poem. I copied it from 10 Things I Hate About You, I just changed a bit and <laughs> reworded it. I just plagiarized it. But I wrote it as a poem. I sent it to her. I gave it to her. And then when we returned to the UK, two days later, she came back and gave me the poem. And her boyfriend had edited it for me to oh. improve it. Wow. <laughs> improved the love. And like gave to his girlfriend, and it was okay feedback. It was really, it was a really bad poem. But what I realised then was, although my mission was unsuccessful, the act of writing the poem was something that stayed with me more, and was something that felt essential to me as a person to develop what I was thinking, what I wanted to do, all of that sort of stuff. And that's why I started writing poetry. Yeah. <laughs> That is a great story. That that is that is a good story too. I I I, I always with me. I always um, I just always I always wrote like because I grew up in a in a house where my father recited Shakespeare and he made maybe he didn't tell me that it was Shakespeare. He so I thought that he and and the um, the one um, 
there's a poem with the, uh, about winter, about when icicles hang by the wall. And there's a line, and Greasy Joan doth keel the pot. Well, my mother's name is Joan. So I never thought she was particularly greasy, but I thought, well, maybe it has a different, maybe it means something different. <laughs> Very odd of him to use that word when describing my mother, but... You know, but yeah. So my my whole like childhood was um, like uh, Edward Lear and 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 um, and uh, Lewis Carroll and and uh, Shakespeare and all that like Victorian morality poems and stuff like that, which I can still recite some of them. So yeah, and and my my background is I mean my my uh, my birth certificate. I was born in in in, in well in, in Sheffield. So um, we came over when I was two and a half. But my birth certificate. At, because I was born in 1963. It's this huge, ridiculous piece of paper. And on it, my father's occupation there, and his occupation was grinder, like, which is like so bizarre. It's like skilled, oh, yeah. I think it's even skilled grinder. So not even an amateur grinder, but a skilled grinder. You know? So yeah, his occupation was right there on the um on the thing. So yeah, that's really interesting about caring. Yeah, because I do notice that in your bio, you always make sure to include that. Like it's working class is an important. Those are important. That's an important perspective. And I think it's it's prevalent, too, in the work that you've published as well through Bro Broken Sleep. Uh, so on that note, what would you like listeners to know about Broken Sleep books? And I'm particularly interested in the name and also this 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 um, this uh, sentence that you always include on every uh, book and on the site lay out your unrest. So do do talk about those things and anything else. So. Um... From a very young age, I've had insomnia and parasomnia. My poor mother, um, although she had three under the age of three, at one point she would have had, yeah, three under three, two under one. I was born in the January 89, and she was pregnant with my brother by March 89. Gave birth to him in December 89. So me and my brother were born in the same year, same calendar year, but we're not twins. Um, just by a weird chance. Yeah. Um, but... I've I've always struggled with sleep, and it's always been a weird sort of thing. I had night terrors from a very young age, which is really common in children to have night terrors. Wake up, blue yeah. snakes, see on there, and act out these fears and thrashes, etc. But mine didn't stop until I was thirty-one, two years ago. Um, and what's common is night terrors about two to three times a month is considered common. Any more than that, four or five times a month is considered really frequent. And I'd have six to ten night terrors a night, just consistently waking up and screaming. And if I was to have one now, I'd be awakening where I am, but I'd be right. there'd be like a layer of dream over reality, and I'd respond as if it is reality. So I've had night terrors where I've seen one of my four brothers dying on the floor in front of me, and my brain is awake. We're in reality, but there's layer of dreams there. My brain assumes it's real. Yeah. So I've seen my brother die multiple multiple times which is horrific awesome. um and honestly when sleeping is that troublesome and that's scary your brain learns to not want to sleep and the insomnia kicks in so i've had it my whole life so that's partly why it's broken sleep books because my sleep has always been broken another reason is i started depressed when my daughter rue was about six months old yeah so sleep was particularly broken then. Yeah. <laughs> I was shattered, in a shattered sleep. <laughs> yeah, completely. She was not a good sleeper. My son Otis, who was born in January 2020, a few years later, was able to sleep from the start, but Rue didn't sleep that well. But I had to sleep in a different room because of the night terrors when Rue was little. We didn't want me screaming and waking her up and then her screaming and waking everyone up and all this sort of stuff sleep in a different room with a baby monitor and the moment a baby monitor ran off with her crying i'd run over to the bedroom to change her to stay with emma while i'm breastfed and then when they both got back to sleep i'd go back to my room to sleep until the baby monitor sounded because even though i was in a different room i wanted to be completely active yeah. and involved so my sleep was incredibly broken there so that's the two of the reasons third reason is probably the most prominent and that's, I'm a fan of the work of the poet J.H. Prynne, who I've published three books by. He's published a lot recently. Um, he's a very eminent British post-war poet. I think he's 85, mid-80s now. Um, but he's still publishing like 12 books a year at the moment. He's gone, he's gone wild. But I was a big fan of his work. And he's got an early book called The White Stones. And in that is a poem called Smaller Than the Radius of the Planet. 
And that was the poem that changed the way I wrote. So before that, I thought I was a poet. I was in, I was probably 23. I thought I was a poet, but I wasn't reading poetry that much. And the poetry I was reading was more like spoken word stuff. Um, and I wasn't good at spoken word. That's a whole other skill and talent in his own right. And I wasn't good at that. And I picked up the white stones and I can't remember why, but I picked it up and I thought I'd give this a go. And it changed my understanding of poetry. And I learned actually how I could be a better poet is by reading poetry. That's yeah. how I'm going to be better. And in the, in the Smaller Than the Rates of the Planet by J.H. there's a line and it's, I lay out my unrest like white lines on the slope so that something out of broken sleep may land there. So wow. that's where the broken sleep and broken sleep books comes from. And the beginning, I lay out my unrest. So that's why we use lay out your unrest in all of our books. Kind of like writing as an act of laying out one's unrest. Yeah. You know, writing all those emotions onto the paper, etc. But also connecting back to that original poem and all the themes. So it's, it's a complicated mess, but that's, that's how that name and motto came about. Right. And, and yeah, I, I have to say the idea of unrest is so like we'll talk more about about the the works later, but um, especially I, I had the chance to read through the 2021 anthology. I, I didn't quite get it all finished because I I liked it so much. I was I was constantly slowing down with with uh, and not reading. You know, it's hard to scan read uh, fast with poems. Uh, but yeah. uh, <laughs> The thing is, there, there's something so urgent. I mean, the, what to me, the connection between a lot of the work and that, and, and also I have a number of pamphlets too. It, there's just a lot of urgency to the work. Like it feels almost like, and this may sound, seem like an exaggeration, but it almost feels like, um, and I felt this way sometimes, like you have to get these words out. You have to get them out. Like they just have to come out. Like it's, it's you, you'll, maybe you won't die necessarily, but it feels like that in a way that you just you just feel like you have to. And I felt like that when I was reading a lot of the work, well, actually all of the work that I I um, I dog-eared in here, which is a lot. I'm horrified by the dog ears. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So what about what else would you would you like us to know about Broken Sleep before we uh, before we uh, carry on? <laughs> so I did a. I used to be a teacher, but I'm sure we'll get to the circumstances of that because that's a whole story. I used to be a teacher, and I went back to the school I taught her um, a year after leaving to do a poetry workshop because um, I was still really close with the school and connected. And I said to the students, um, who likes poetry? And they were about 12 years old, and one hand went up, and they named Spike Milligan, and that was it. No one asked his name of her. They didn't care. They didn't like poetry. It was fine. I said, okay. Um, who likes music? Yeah. And they were all put their hand up. And I was like, okay. I said, but so you all like um, hip hop? Well, I don't. Oh, I don't like hip hop. So you like jazz? No, no, we don't like jazz. I don't like. Jazz. So when, I didn't ask you what type of poetry you liked either. I just said poetry, just like I said, just music. Huh? So there's different styles of poetry. Poetry isn't one thing that encapsulates everything. Otherwise, Kanye West wouldn't be called hip hop. He'd be called music. And Beethoven would be called music and all that. And it, that's true, but they have genres and poetry as genres. I didn't ask them what genre of poetry they liked. They like. I just asked that as a whole thing. And I think that's what I am proud of with Broken Sleep is that I don't have a particular genre of poetry or style of poetry that is definitively us. There's some presses that have a very particular style in like the pastoral or psychogeography or all that sort of stuff. And that's fine. And they're great at it and they do it really well. But with us, I adore and love poetry so much. I genuinely live and breathe poetry <laughs> in all its forms. I love experimental. I love lyrical. I love um, sort of like Baroque stanzas and sonnets. And I love free verse. And I love prose poetry. I love it all. I really love poetry. And I think that's why people like Broken Sleep is because they know in any given year, even if you have a very niche taste in poetry, we're going to put something out of a high quality that you that will match your interests and your tastes. Because for me, it's about not about going, okay, well, we've got to fit this narrow mindset. It's about going, how good is this at what it wants to do? And if it's great at what it wants to do, then I want to put it out. Right. That, yeah, no, for sure. There's a lot of variety in the anthology and also in, in the pamphlets. I mean, from fragments to uh, narrative to all kinds of things in there to uh, some visual poems, too. So you've 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 run uh, quite a range, which is uh, fun. And the one thing I, I mean, I, I, I haven't I 
didn't spend a lot of time on your site until I, I was researching for this episode, because <laughs> that's that's just how we are sometimes about websites. We only go and we, we you know look carefully when we absolutely. At least I'm that way. I I'll look around a little bit, but I won't absorb much. So I was I was surprised to learn that actually Broken Sleep Books is a ten person team, or at least it was. It, it, it uh, there's a lot of people in, on the on the editorial board. So that's that's a huge. Just even working with that many people is already a lot to me. It's because, you know, I, I at this stage, I don't. Well, I used to work with a lot of people in my life, but uh, these days I um, I don't too often. Can you talk about the people who are part of Broken Sleep Books and maybe how maybe if there's something about how they ended up coming on, uh, becoming part of the press? Yeah. So when I started Broken Sleep, I started it by myself. And my idea was that I wanted to publish pamphlets or chapbooks depending on what side of the Atlantic you want to call it um, inside old tape cassette cases so there would be tape cassette size inside yeah. old tape cassette cases that we could reuse for that and then we could do the same with connections but inside old VHS cases and that was my whole idea that's what I wanted to do <laughs> and we did one inside the tape cassette and realised one this limits availability if I can only make so many and if you're not there to buy that one or those 40 or whatever, then you don't get a copy. And that's, I don't want to do that. Two, the time and production costs and all this sort of stuff is really extensive and free. It limited what format and style of books you could put out. Because if someone ran long lines, you couldn't publish it. And it really became limiting. So I wanted to change that. And I ran it by myself for a little bit and then took on Charlie Bayliss, who was a friend of mine. Right. I was talking um, and I said, I'm just like getting submissions and stuff. And I don't know, there might be stuff that's brilliant and I haven't understood it. And someone talking to someone about this submission, I might get it or understand it. And I took Charlie on as assistant editor and he's been in that position. Um, it's not like a paid position, but he's done that ever since. And in return, I'm the assistant editor for Anthropocene Journal, his website, his poetry journal online, which is a really good journal too. So we did a kind of swap share thing. Like we assisted right. each other, edit each other's stuff. And then I'm bad at marketing in the sense of writing copy. That's not a skill of mine. And I'm aware of this. So when you read blurbs that synopsize books on the back and stuff, I'm not good at that at all. <laughs> but Charlie is excellent. So Charlie does that. And then um, over the first lockdown, I came to the conclusion that I wanted an editorial advisory board yeah. of people who have very different tastes and experience and lived experiences and come from a variety of different demographics so that every submission that we get is viewed and discussed through a prism of tastes and interests and people rather than just a narrow-minded me and Charlie or just me or whatever. So we advertise the editorial board and it doesn't always get used as such so a recent submission call out that we did we didn't go to the submission board because Charlie and I were really quite certain what we wanted to go with but other times we do once a year or so we'll definitely meet and discuss submissions definitely the collections and the way it works is that we get submissions we probably get about 6,000 submissions a year no I was horrified to hear that 6,000 <laughs> yeah. yeah we get an, uh, such an extensive amount um that's a group cool. of fiction mission call at the moment for prose pamphlets. I haven't advertised it, and we've had nearly a thousand submissions. I haven't advertised it anywhere. It's just on the website. I didn't tweet it. <laughs> I didn't Instagram it or anything. It's just just picked up organically. Mm. Um, and I realised like that's a lot to read through, obviously. And after you've read that many submissions, you can get quite kind of like you can't see the wood through the trees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. Yeah. So I put together a long list of ones that I think are stand out, and it's usually about 100. And then Charlie reads the long list, and me and him get together, and we narrow it down to a short list of between 20 to 50. We send that to the editorial advisory board. They read it through, then we all get on a Zoom chat, and we will discuss the final short list and which ones we think should go ahead, and we all make our points. So I think this one's great. No, I don't think you understand what this one's doing, etc. And we work through that, which has been a really important process. And they get... Um, Every month they get a their their free subscribers to Broken Sleep, so they get two copies of every book every month, two copies of books every month. Um, which that's kind of how that 
plays out. And, you know, we've become friends with the editorial advisory board and I'm friends with some of them and we send work back and forth. And then my wife, Emma, is the admin. So she answers all the emails um, of like uh, orders, issues. Um, if an organization or a charity wants to get in touch, it all goes through her and then she deals with that because the bigger we got, the more I realized that was taking time away from editing and typesetting and designing I could be doing. So she does that and she does all the orders and ships out all the orders and does all that sort of stuff, which is fantastic. Yeah, and it has the same <laughs> yeah. And she job. does like little things that I don't consider doing and I never would have done. Like there's little touches like stickers that she puts in the envelopes that people love and I never would have considered that. Or mm. if I'm stuck on a cover design and I can't figure out how to get it right, I go to her straight away because she'll be able to look at it and go, your problem is X, Y, Z, do this, try this, do it. So a really good relationship there. And it probably, it helps a bit that she's not really a fan of poetry. Right. Because she gets to look at it at a more removed situation. And then yeah. with getting bigger again, I realized we're getting, authors want a lot of, authors want reviews because, you know, you want your poetry to be read, you want your work to be read and considered and analyzed. Yeah. And that was really difficult for me to send out the time to send out these emails, to fight, to chase up reviews. It's a hot, like reviews are the most difficult things. So I hired Dave Matar and Day is paid. My wife Emma's paid, Day's paid. And Day's job, they just go and send out all the reviews and they email magazines and journals and they get in touch with bookshops and that sort of thing. Mm. And then um, Kat Alan Conway, who published a brilliant American Orange with us, she got in touch when we were doing a fundraiser recently and says, look, I want to help out. I want to offer something, but I don't want to, I, I can, I can donate if you want me to, or I can offer my services. And she was a presenter. She is a presenter. She's worked for some national newspapers and stuff like this. So we took her on and we gave her the free monthly subscription. And she said, I don't want to be paid for this. I just want to help because I love the press. So she now edits all our prose books and all our prose releases, which is great because she's so much better at it than I could ever dream of being. And I know that once I pass it over to her, it's in safe hands. So yeah, that's 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 the team and why they're all so so essential. Well, that's great. And I mean, the, the thing that I, 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 it sounds like things have come together kind of naturally in a way, rather than sort of having to force it, like, which is, nice. yeah. I like the idea of someone just actually contacting you and offering services. That's terrific. Although uh, I run something called bywords.ca, which is a local site and, and poetry um, uh, magazine. And uh, we have, um, we have a uh, volunteers who come and and and, and uh, join us editors as well but uh, so yeah we get we get people who offer their services as well so i shouldn't act like it's a big surprise because it does happen and in the literary community there are a lot of people doing that which is which is great yeah. we wish we could pay them all rather than rather than do that yeah. in canada the way it works is we get um we apply for funding so we well you have fund you have some funding there too but um so um we get this bywords.ca gets funding from the city of Ottawa and we cannot, they won't give us the amount of money we need to, to pay editors, which would be fantastic if we could. I will do things like um, write uh, reference letters for people or vouch for them. I'll help them edit stuff or whatever. If I can help in some way, I'll, I'll, I'll you know, that's, that's how I, I try to give back in other words. And certainly all their events and stuff get promoted. On. Well, everyone, we have a, a literary calendar events too on the sites for literary, spoken word yeah. uh, non-fiction um uh all kinds of different things and uh yeah they for sure their their events if if you know i know about them they'll be on there and everything will be and all their links and stuff so that's the only way we can really afford to uh, support them but we all we pay our writers so that's you know that's the main thing we pay all our contributors so which uh, is is always the it's best if yeah, now getting back to something, this because it comes up later on, but you said something interesting, pamphlet or chapbook, depending on which side of the Atlantic. Now, I am convinced, I have convinced myself, and I'm probably completely wrong, that pamphlets are not quite the same as chapbooks, because I have limited experience with pamphlets and probably don't know. But for me, a chapbook, uh, this is such a minor thing, but I'm a nerdy writer, so I have to pay attention to language. A chapbook for me... Um, is never 
a perfect balancing. Like, and I know people will argue with you about that because people will argue with me about it. But to me, a chapbook is either a staple. It could be, it could be, it's not really a, it's not a book to me. It's like a, it's like a, a like a, you know, 20 pages, 25. The official UNESCO definition has it being 32 or fewer pages. But, you know, like to me, it's, it's just a small thing. It, it, it's not perfect bound and uh, it's often stapled, sometimes sewn, you know, but that's, that's it. And, and often like it's, 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 um, well, it can be either a publisher or a press, or it can be, but that, that's me. And when, it, when I see, what I see coming out of um, Broken Sleep Books, uh, the pamphlets, they, to me, well, they, first of all, they're beautifully made. Uh, a lot of them are very similar in style. Um, usually it's, a, it's not always, yours, for instance, is, is different from the others, but um, um, the, um, the Rise of, but Aaron Kent, but um, the, like, they have a very specific, like, they're all the same and they, they, they have a spine. As thin as they are, they have a spine. So, which, and they have often you, you use that cool. I like that um, material that's used for the cover. I've forgotten what it's called. We use it too sometimes. It's it's quite nice. But anyway, that's what I have from from you. And I, I have pamphlets from a few other places. Again, they all in the in in, in the UK, and they are all perfect bound. So that's why. Yeah. I think we don't use chapbook at all, really, in the UK as any phrase. Like we do the legitimate snack series yeah which um are about they're always 12 pages and always staple bound um they're not perfect bound the staple bound etc and we sell them as pamphlets and i have uh, a couple of the copies of i don't have those <laughs> they're, they're, well, they're more difficult to ship internationally because <laughs> <laughs> yeah because we can ship to like america because we're part of a printing network right in the u.s in north america and like, say, when you ordered the pamphlets and the books in Canada, we can just process the order through a printing network in, I don't know where in America it is. And then there's less customs and shipping time to worry about than sending it from the UK. Yeah. But we can't do that with legitimate snacks because we make them here on site. But with those, we still call them pamphlets or mini books or et cetera. Um, and over here in the UK, you find that um, with competition rules, they generally limit pamphlets and they list them as pamphlets as anything under about 40 pages about 40 yeah. anything over collection like at the michael marks awards is builds itself as the award for poetry pamphlets and it it's up to 36 pages i believe so mm -hmm. obviously the cover they count as one page in the front cover second page inside cover so it's 40 pages if you include the cover um but yeah so in the uk it kind of is just pamphlets relatively there's some leeway on page size and page room etc but it's relatively under 40 as a pamphlet over 40 as a collection but i was kind of people always have opinions on what we should be calling them also because <laughs> when new authors say to their parents oh i've just published a pamphlet you get people think like um well like a leaflet that you get in the doctor's office like what is a pamphlet right. that's a pamphlet so well, I just kind of say, call it whatever you want. Yeah, chapbook. Nobody knows what chapbook is, and there's another word, zine. Now, zine to me is very yeah. different from a chapbook, but some people use yeah, it like, interchangeably, so that's fine. Call it whatever you want. It's just um, I may at some point have uh, something coming out with a UK press. I cannot say more at this point, and it is a pamphlet because I asked. I said, "What is this now? Will this be a book? Will this be a pamphlet? Will this be a chat?" And so I, I haven't. Had a, I had a, um, I had an online. Um, um, oh, I'm drawing black now. Is it a pamphlet if it's online? I don't know. Now I'm getting weird. But I, I, the Red Ceilings Press put out a, a um, something of mine that was shaped like a, a collection of a, a long poem that was a PDF. And I don't know whether they call it a pamphlet or a chat. But a, a number of years ago, now called Me Medusa. So that, so this will be my second. Uh, I guess, uh, major British publication. So I'm excited. But I can't talk about it more. We've just, <laughs> just kind of standardized it to pamphlet is up to X amount of pages and collection is X amount of pages and above. And that's just kind of standardized it. So if someone says, oh, look at my chat book of 30 pages of poetry. Okay, cool. You call it a chat book, but we'll think of it as a pamphlet. So mm -hmm. I think it's quite good that we kind of standardized that language. But really, like if an author says, oh, what should I call it to my friends or my parents? Just say, I just, I just call it a 30-page book. 
to call it a 45 page book. Sometimes I use the word publication just to be, but I'm starting to my my bio and just, you know, because I have over so many chapbooks and now I will have in the bio, I will have a pamphlet. So I want to have the word pamphlet in there. First of all, I have, I have grapheme synesthesia and pamphlet is a beautiful, soft yellow word. So I want to have a soft yellow word in my bio. That will be nice. I have a lot of brightly colored things in my bio so it should be this will balance it a little bit i like that <laughs> yes my brain is very strange itself so there you go but uh let's see okay so um so when uh, when visiting the site when i first visited the site uh, which was a few years ago the, the brokensleepbooks.com the first thing that i noticed was this description of a press where community where community action inclusivity and innovation are at the forefront I was really pleased to see this, and you've done several fundraising campaigns and demonstrate a lot of care in all you do. How did that come about, and why do you think it's important? And can you talk about some of the actions that you do as part of this? Yeah, so for me, there's a kind of desire to kind of see it as, this is the best way I can describe it, is the degentrification of poetry the best possible way I could describe it and it's just the idea of I don't want poetry to be middle-class publishers using middle-class printing materials in middle-class books or middle-class authors for middle-class audience I don't want that that's that's not what I want at all I I want community and that's why like with the snacks the legitimate snacks we do them in limited editions of 40 but we also release an anthology that collects all the snacks so if you miss out or you can afford it or you weren't there when it was released or etc you can still go and get the snacks and read the snacks with a free pdf to anyone who wants it because for me as much as this is my full-time job now it's essential that community is a cornerstone of the arts and the creative arts and of poetry and what i do i know poets who really vehemently disagree with that and talk about oh, why is everyone so obsessed with collaborating and community and all this? Why can't we just sit alone in our rooms and write poetry? I'm like, well, no one's stopping you. If that's what you want to do, go do that. Like, more power to you. Nobody has to do that, so that's fine. (laughs) Yeah, do that. Do that. You know, whatever makes you, whatever works for you. But for me, I love the community that poetry offers and the community that writing offers. And... And that, to me, is an essential part of the press. Like, 10 years ago, well, I'm 33, so it was more like 11 years ago, I used to be a naval submariner. I was in the military, and I was on the submarines, and I came out, I was medically distressed for my insomnia, and um, I joined a online poetry group in a forums, in, like, some forums, and... It was really sycophantic. It was just you share up your poems. Someone else will tell you they love it. You go to theirs and tell you that you love theirs. And no one there was kind of, I guess, pushing for their poetry to be the next big award-winning book. Or They just liked writing poetry, and that was fine. And it was a really nice spirit. But I read the work of a poet there called Stuart McPherson, and I was hooked. This was 11, 11 or 12 years ago. I was hooked. And likewise, Stuart was hooked to my work. And we <laughs> shared poems, we discovered, we edited, we helped each other, and we stayed in each other's life. And Stuart stepped away from poetry, and I stayed with it. And then about two years ago, Stuart started writing poetry again. And I published two of his books with a third on the way now, because I just think he's brilliant. He came round a couple of weekends ago, crashed on the couch, we stayed up all night chatting, met my kids, we're going to like we've got a close relationship family wise and everything and that's because it started through just finding a poetry community and the positivity of that and because of that i've now got this great friend who i know would be there regardless of poetry and that's why community for me is essential i also kind of think of it in the gentrified terms because to me the middle class are very interested in solitary pursuits so like well-being, people really like mindfulness, not well-being, mindfulness. People really like mindfulness. And mindfulness is kind of you know, sitting back, being at one and finding how to better yourself. Whereas I'm not, which is great if that's what you want to do, more power to you, happy days. But I'm not interested in bettering myself. 
I'm not like that's I don't want to sit there and think about myself for an hour I've got I want to think about other people I want to think about who I can help for an hour I want to think about what work I can do for an hour and you know who I can talk to and who might need help for something that's what I want to do for an hour and I think it comes from being working class and growing up in working class areas terraced houses council estates etc community is the fundamental aspect of that life whereas middle class individuals strive to have detached houses and live with some land and a small holding away from people right. and i think that's what i get from the poetry community and i want the working class thing i want poetry to be a council estate where everyone hangs out and chats to each other and stays up in the news and boosts each other etc and i don't want it to be a small holding two miles from anyone yeah no i i'm i'm right there i'm, I'm cheering along with you and i wanted to say too i i read um water bear stewart's uh stewart's uh pamphlet and it's it's really magnificent. I don't think I've had a chance to uh, to tell him yet how much I loved it. Like I have several dog ear pages. It's just it's really powerful, and there's there. I mean, it's it's a really strong. I mean, it's 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 a, well. I I would I, I sort of consider the two yours um um your yours the rise of. Do you do you say the rise of Aaron Kent or do you say the rise of and leave it there? Like how do you? I always say the rise of Aaron Kent, but I let people say what they want. I initially wrote it under a pseudonym. Yeah. Um, because I was too scared to write it under my own name. Okay, yeah. But then I changed it to The Rise Of, and I wanted to do a follow-up called The Rise and Fall Of, Aaron Ken, and I said, trying to make that character. I'm fine with whatever one people want to call it. it, it, it whatever. <laughs> it's always nice to have that awkward silence where people are going, hmm, how shall I refer to this? Yeah, so... <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, Water Bear, I mean, it, it's really good. I love... Um, the metaphorical language in there. I mean, it just, it just, he kind of overwhelms with all the imagery like, and it goes with what the subject matter is too. And then there's yours as well, which is again, I, um, you call it a six right there. This is a four by six uh, inch. Uh, we, we're still in some, some of it, we're partly in the metric system and we're partly still in the imperial system. We're all messed up. Well, especially me at my age, because I started <laughs> off, I started off um, I did my I started my education in Canada and then we were we, we had we had lived here for a few years and my mother said she missed her family and she wanted to go back. So she took my sister and I back. My brother and my dad stayed and, and we had this house in, in sort of northern uh, sort of uh, just a little above Toronto, Ontario, uh, like an hour or so. And so he, they had to stay to sell the house. We went back and everything was a disaster and stuff like that. But one of the things was I started I started to learn uh, math and stuff and and um, uh, the imperial system here. And then we went to Britain and then there I was I was in um in a in a, a, a school in, in Sheffield, actually, with a lot of kids reading Beano, Beano and Dandy at, at, at um, dinner time and eating uh, eating gross things that had gravy and beet sauce, so weird vegetables all combined. It was horrifying. But uh, but uh, and also I got caned a number of times by the headmistress. So that was entertaining, too. This was this was a long time ago. But uh, it was it was uh, we came back after three months of, of living there. So I missed I think I also missed my smallpox uh, vaccination as well. So, you know, so there's a lot of things. That's strange. But that, that <laughs> is my, my, it means I tend to be weird about. So I say I talk about inches, but I also talk about the weather I talk about in in, uh, in Celsius. So you just don't. And, and this is not yeah. uncommon, actually, for people here to be mixed up by our we have, America is still in the imperial system. What a surprise. So, you know, we're all all confused. But yeah, with with your, your book, first of all, it was a different style, at least in the other pamphlets I have from uh, Broken Sleep Books. And it also had a cover with um, with with. Um, art on it as opposed to the blank cover. And also Stuart's also has um, art on the cover of the bright light. So it was kind of interesting to me that I had all these, all of these pamphlets that were uh, single color, very, uh, not, I wouldn't call it plain because they, they're colorful, you know, but they don't have, they don't have uh, they, a lot of, um, they don't have images on them in that sense, unadorned maybe. And then there's yours. Yeah. Both of them deal well, with I- trauma, right? And, and, yeah. and yeah, so it was an interesting difference. Well, I think in the middle of last year, we started, I started to put art on the cover and images and illustrations of the covers instead. So when I first started the press, I was teaching um, Photoshop and InDesign um, oh. as a media studies lecturer. And I was practicing and using it. And I wasn't great at it. I could do a bit here and there. And that's where the covers were bland at first because... 
One, I wanted to assert a house style and a broken sleep identity so you could see a broken sleep book and get it and know it's broken sleep. But two, I didn't have the skills to attempt anything further. And then probably about middle of last year, every cover has had illustrations and design since. Um, So like I've got a stack in my head now. I've got Thomas, Tom Snarsky's Complete Sentences, who's a great American poet. It's about teaching and it's a chalkboard cover. It looks like a chalkboard. Got S.J. Fowler's The Great Apes, which has got a great image of an ape. And then also in my hand, I've got Yuji Vlagish's Selected Lyric Poetry, which is just typographic with the words cover. The words cover the entirety of this yellow cover. Um, So we expanded and that's kind of to do with two things. One, I was becoming better at Photoshop and InDesign. And I felt that our brand identity was strong enough that we could do that with the rise of actually it's a tape cassette it's the size of yeah. a tape cassette yeah there's on the back there's the uh yeah, yeah. on the back and it's designed like track listings etc and that's because when i started the press i wanted to write about um what the rise of deals with but i wasn't there yet and i was publishing pamphlets in excess sizes so this is coming full circle this is <laughs> that sized book to come full circle to how we started and my acceptance of who I am um but at the end of 2020 so October the 7th 2020 when everyone else was dealing with COVID I was teaching a GCSE lesson and I felt like someone had poured freshly boiled kettle water over my brain it was like 100 degrees Celsius poured over my brain and it was it was boiling in the crevices of it. It was awful. It was a terrible experience. And then I went to the office, an air ambulance arrived at school, another ambulance arrived at school, and I slipped into a coma. And I'd had a brain hemorrhage. I'd had a stroke at 31 years old, just uh, 32 years old. And I was taken to the ICU in Cardiff. And I came out of the coma like a week later. My wife had been told by the doctors he's not going to make it through the night, every night for about a week. She'd planned my funeral. At the time, my daughter was three and her son was eight months old. Um, and I was in hospital for about five five or so weeks. I had to learn to talk and walk again because it was making no sense and I couldn't walk properly. And I recovered, as you can see. I, you wouldn't like talking to me or know me. You wouldn't have a clue. I've lost 25% vision, so I'm partially sighted. I've got no vision in the top left quadrant of my eye. Nothing. Um, my insomnia was better before the stroke and now is back with a vengeance. <laughs> but maybe sleeping towards it, who knows? Um and I get I get really tired during the day because you know there's a scar in my brain interrupting patterning and so I have to work overtime. Sun hurts my eyes. I love the rain and wind now. I hate the sunshine. I hate summer. You like um, to be here because that's what we got. <laughs> that's what I want. I want to live in Iceland. I'm happy with Greenland. I'll take North Norway. That's what I want. But my <laughs> wife loves the sunshine so I have to put on Ray-Bans and grin and bear it. Um, <laughs> but I was in recovery and I said to the college, I said, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come back and teach. I nearly lost my children. My children nearly lost their father. I was traveling a lot of time. I said, I don't know. I don't know if I can do that anymore. And they said, they said, look, what do you want to do? I said, my dream would be to run Brexit full time. And they said, okay, I'll tell you what, we're happy to keep paying you for six months. We'll keep paying you. So you can get broken sleep up and running and see if it's a viable full-time thing. And I will forever love that college for doing that. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Yeah, they were incredible. They looked after me. They stayed in touch. They've brought me back a couple of times for paid workshops and readings. They want me to be their parent residence. They've been brilliant. And I did it. And I worked on broken sleep. We upped our publication schedule from like two pamphlets a month to two pamphlets, a collection, and a prose book every month. Um, actually, from now on, it's three pamphlets, two collections, and one prose book every month. <laughs> because I had the time to do that. That is wild. Yeah. I... yeah, so we do about 72 books a year, not including Legitimate Snack. So including Legitimate Snack and Anthology, we probably hit 100 this year. Um, oh. And then slow down a bit next year. But I have the time to do it. So like, there are some times where I finish a book, and I'm, I'm like six months ahead. I've typeset designed... December's books is what May and I've done December's I'm about to start January February March 2013 and we're scheduled up till June 2014 because I have the time and I have the effort 
Um, yeah, you remind me of me in that. I, I, I like the only thing is I'm not a good designer. So and I and Charles, my husband, who is a good designer and and can make InDesign sing. All I can do is make it cry and and scream. So we, I'm I'm I can only do the basic stuff. For you. But yeah, that's the same. The other thing too is uh, like you. Um, I my well, my husband was told that I wasn't going to make it. I almost I almost died in 2009. So in fact, it was a certainty, right? They 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 said. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. And, and, and the other thing I was going to say, too, is that uh, the first time I ever heard you, about you and about Broken Sleep Books was through Richard Capener, who posted uh, the, uh, there was a crowdfunding campaign to help out uh, Broken Sleep Books, to help you out, actually. And uh, that was the first time I'd heard. And, and you know, I remember um, that, that that was my first time. Heard, and this this guy who's a publisher and he's had a He's had a, a stroke and a brain hemorrhage. Just like, oh my god, you know. And, um, yeah, so yeah, I mean, that was my first. That's how I heard about you. So I hadn't heard about you otherwise. But my introduction to a lot of um, of uh, contemporary British uh, uh, presses has been through the Babel Tower notice board, which you know I somehow managed to uh, wisely uh, follow the uh, follow the. Uh, Twitter account uh, when when Richard started up, I don't know, I was intrigued by it. And that has led me to a whole bunch of amazing writers and publishers. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that the Babel Tower isn't around, but uh, at the same time, I think he's going to do great things with uh, Hem Press. And so, and he already has started. So, and then, and uh, for me, the benefit has been meeting all these great people and, and f finding community, not just locally uh, or, or even in North America, but also, also there. I mean, I have other contacts too, like, um, um, uh, Tim Glasset editions in Sweden and, and some of the visual poets in other other places to Germany and, and, and stuff like that. So to me, that's what I love about community. This doesn't have to just be what you were connected by, like poetry or visual poetry or whatever it is. It's there. And then the spirit of giving and generosity and sharing, and it's all there as part of that. But that's the, we have this common love that that uh, or in some cases hatred for some but uh they hate it so they do it you know in a different way they say but you know whatever whatever works whatever works yeah speaking of anthologies you've actually um you've done so much uh, so many and there's some really interesting ones that, like well they're all really interesting and i only own i only own the the 2021 but um i should own more but you know i someone has to give me more money before i can own as much as i want to but um yeah, so what what is it about the anthology format that appeals to you? Well, initially, I wanted to do the yearly anthologies to indicate the strength of work that we published that year. And you find that people will pick up the 2019 anthology and then you'll see the same name ordering six different books a month later that they've read aspects of in the anthology and want to return to and want the whole text. And that was always... I, I just wanted to find another way to showcase these authors. And also, it meant that like this year, we've got Jed, we published a Jed print book. So people will buy the anthology for that alone. But we've also published debut authors that haven't had a reach because that doesn't matter to me what reach they've got when I publish them. But they get to sit next to Jed's print and people will read their work through that. And it's a great way to help authors build an audience. But with, I think it started with Crossing Lines which was a very important anthology. So my my granddad, who passed away in October, just gone, um, he was in his mid-80s. He'd been drinking most of his life and smoking until he had a stroke. Um, so at least we had... I'd never smoked, but at least we had a stroke in common. But he was a Hungarian war refugee, um, and he lived in Sheffield, actually. Um, okay. That's where... Well, initially lived in Cornwall, then eventually moved to Sheffield, and I spent a lot of time in Sheffield with them. Um and it was important that, you know, this just being like raised and my best friend was this Hungarian war refugee. And then I was working with a guy who was a refugee from Europe who hadn't got citizenship. He wasn't, he was a, he had settled status, but he wasn't considered a citizen. And he had stepkids in the country. And there was always this concern about what happens when he dies, what happens if something happens to him, what rights does he have with stepkids and visitors, and all this sort of stuff. And I asked him, why don't you just get citizenship? And that's when he told me, oh, it costs £1,600. It costs a lot of money. Wow. And if you make one mistake on the form, you there's no appeal process. You have to redo it all again oh, for another £1,600. And he just didn't have the money. And I thought, how can I make, 
how can I raise this money for him? How can I get him that money? So we did, I did, I came up with crossing lines and I did crossing lines, which was anybody could submit who was, um, I think it was two generation, three generation immigrants. And it was a way to showcase the creative arts and work of people who were a family of immigrants who or who were immigrants. And I'm, I left immigrants as non-prescriptive. So I allowed it to be um, an immigrant to America or vice versa, et cetera, as well as immigrants to Asia or Europe or Australia or whatever. And we used the money of the submissions. If you couldn't afford to donate to submit, then to his GoFundMe for a citizenship cost I set up, then I fine, I would have accepted it anyway and I said that. So only if you could donate, and if not, you can still submit. And then we'll use some of the funding and the profits of the anthology. And he got his citizenship in the middle of last year. He's now a, a British That's citizen. That's fantastic. And it felt great. Yeah. yeah, it felt like a really wonderful thing. And then I was on Twitter talking about Nintendo. I don't really play many video games. Because, <laughs> you know, I've got children and work and all this sort of stuff. And we're in a cost of living crisis at the moment. <laughs> but well, as a kid, I loved Nintendo. I really liked it as a kid. Um, and I got chatting about that and then me and Matt Haig did the video game anthology like what would it look like if people write poetry about video games and I enjoyed that process so we expanded it from there and we've done the Aphex Twin anthology who yeah. was a great edition who grew up in the same town I grew up in and went to the school I grew up in long before me but it was still there and we've got a Friend Rabbit one coming out and yeah. we have uh, eco poetry footprints one come out next month which uh, for every submission we got we planted a tree and for every copy of the book sales we'll plant a tree so the idea is that we do one at least a minimum of one anthology a year in which that anthology utilizes its profits and proceeds and submissions and such towards a charitable cause so we're currently working on one that's embargoed because it's got some of the biggest names in the world poetry it's it's companies of people are taking part in it but it's going to raise money for food banks in the uk um to help feed people who can't who can't feed their families and that became a, a really important thing for me to do i felt to give space to these anthologies that could one showcase authors to a wider audience two put authors next to authors they normally wouldn't be next to and three to give back yeah, you re you're really doing really amazing stuff. I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm working through my own little press to do this caring imagination project. And, you know, you, you um, as soon as I asked, like I asked different presses uh, last year to donate um, some uh, titles, some books or, or pamphlets or publications to, uh, to uh, you know, for the crowdfunding campaign so that I could pay the... Um, the contributors to two our two magazines online and i've been i've been paying writers all through and it's been a, it's been a big help and i mean i wish you were very supportive and i i really appreciated the fact that you were you were willing to do that it was great i and i you know I, i'm going to try again next year but the other thing too is we have a site that we will we will start and i've been i, I have a group of advisors basically it's it's um uh guides and resources for uh, those who want to create, produce, distribute, um, share art um, with compassion, so that's the you know with the goal. And and I feel I like, like I, I feel like I have a lot to learn already from from you. So I will I will take my my I lessons and uh, learn a lot. And and you're really uh, you're really doing great work. Um, do you have any advice for anyone wanting to start a small press? <laughs> Yeah, I've, I've been asked this before, and generally the advice I come up with is just do it. <laughs> like, you're, you're like, I think it's important that the authors you start with are either, either do it with yourself first, so you can see the errors and mistakes and learning process through work that belongs to you. Yeah. So when, like, a legitimate snack I did, I knew it was hand-bound, handmade, and cut all this sort of stuff. So like, how am I going to make that work? How am I going to do that? I'll do it with one of my own work, then I'm not messing up someone else's poetry. I'm not messing up someone else's publication. And two, when I started Broken Sleep, we published Chris Kerr and Sal Burnett. And Chris Kerr was someone I'd edited work for in the past. On I put an open call for editing on Twitter, and I did some of his work. And he was just like, no, I trust you. Let's see how this goes. Let's see how this process goes. Yeah. let's see what happens and that was really easy because 
it was an author who trusted me and I trusted them. And it meant that if things weren't working out, if I needed more time or if I needed to get it right or needed to explore new avenues, I could do so safe in the knowledge that I was with someone who was giving an act of community and peace and radical love. And that was important to me. So that's what I think people should do. I think start with someone who you trust, who's important, and always reach out. Like, I only became really close friends with, say, J.H. Prin. I know J.H. Prin well. We email a lot. We're good friends. He's bad my back because I emailed him and I asked him, I said, I admire you. Can you read some of my poems? Yeah. And he responded in kind. My closest friend is um, Andrew McMillan. He's my, he's my best friend. We WhatsApp all day, every day, him and Stuart McPherson, actually. And all day we watch each other consistently. And that only happened through sharing and sharing work and sharing poetry and chatting and all that. And then we became really good friends. So I think you'll be surprised how much, as much as there are some people on Twitter who give a different perception, I think you'd be surprised by how much the poetry community wants the poetry community to succeed. And that yeah. happens through through generosity and friendship and kindness. That's it. And also between presses too. Like one thing I, I sort of, a red flag for me when I'm considering submitting work is if a, a press, um, some someone tends to be very negative about other or derisive about other press or even just sort of like this kind of swagger, you know, we're the best. I, I cannot, yeah. I cannot for the life of me stand that word. I'm sorry. It's, it's the laziest word in the world best you can't know that um let's be more creative in our in our in our uh, curation let's come up with other ways to describe work my best isn't your best i'd rather be in a, a beast of anthology than a best of anthology any day so <laughs> i want to give do beastly bestly thing there i always have one rant i always have one rant at least sometimes two in, in a podcast episode so that was mine. I think I've done that one already before. Uh, yeah, I guess, um, is there anything else you'd like to, uh, I mean, there are a lot of things we didn't cover, but I, is there anything else you want to wanna talk about before I, I, I read the glowing note of praise I have for Broken Sleep Books? <laughs> um, just, uh, I, think, I think sometimes I'm so positive and so optimistic that people might wonder, um, might look for, oh, you know, is it that growth? Like, does anyone actually love poetry that much? Does anyone really care for community? But it is true. I just adore, I adore poetry. I adore the written word. I read, I've read every single night since I was 16. I read about 30 to 40 novels a year. I read nonfiction. I read at any time of the of the year on any day i've got at least two poetry books one non-fiction book and one fiction book on the go because i just adore it and i love poetry and it is a genuine love i would be doing this and i was doing this i was working as an english teacher and a housemaster with two young children i was working 120 hours a week i was driving myself towards a stroke and i was still running the press because i would do this regardless and we don't take a lot of money from it as a salary. We take no. very little because we obviously it's good to pay yourself for your work. And that's something I do. But at the same time, I've never been someone who wants more than they need. That's never been important to me. And that's never been something that's essential. I just am happy. We live in a converted caravan in my in-laws um, courtyard that me and my wife and our two kids and I am blessed and I'm, I love my work. I love reading and writing and editing and working with poets and poetry all the time. And I, you know, like, what more do you want? It's a, it's a, it's a real act of love, Broken Sleep. And it's one that I, I think about someone, like I've got an agent for my novel and my short story and she's been brilliant. She's selling it around to publishers, et cetera, et cetera. And someone, I can't remember who asked me, what if your novel gets picked up and sells for big money and you become a big novice and I'm like, what happens to Broken Sleep? And I thought, I would still run Broken Sleep. Yeah. I would still be doing it. Like Sam Rivies, I think, is very successful and still runs E for Leaf Fool's Press. I would still be doing this because because it's just pure love and that's that's what matters. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't, I, I, there's not, not even, I, I have to do the note of praise after that because I don't want to say anything more. I, I almost wish we could end the podcast right there, but I have to, I have to now heap praise upon you. This is part oh, of what God. I do. There you go. 
So here's my little note of praise. Broken Sleep Book is a caring press that puts community and inclusivity at the center of its practice. It publishes visceral and compelling work. Reading through several individual pamphlets and the 2021 anthology, I felt the unrest inherent in the work. There's a sense of urgency to the poems along with humor, astonishing imagery and a variety of styles from sprung rhythm to visual poetry. I learned of many writers I hadn't heard of before, not just from the UK, but also from USA and other places such as Trinidad and Tobago. Broken sleep, I'd say never sleeps. It's difficult to imagine how Aaron and his team find the time and energy to do all that they do. So that's it. That's uh, that's my uh, that's my crazy note for you. And uh, I love it. I'll continue to follow the uh, the uh, wonderful work that you do, and there's there probably when I can, I'll probably be getting more uh, chapbooks from uh, the dog-eared uh, authors. I've I've uh, the uh, the work I've dog-eared, in the, not the authors. They're not dog-eared. I haven't dog-eared actual people. Oh, gotten to that stage yet. But maybe that's next. But no, just I will I will definitely get some more. And there's I, and again brokensleepbooks dot um, just make sure yes dot com, and I will put that link up as well. Okay, UK also works. They both lead to the same place. Okay, there you go. Yeah. That's the story of the internet, isn't it? Everything leads. Well, that's it. So thank you, Aaron, for being on the show. Thanks to Jennifer Peterson for uh, helping with the intro and outro, to Charles Earl for processing, and to all of you for listening and for sharing the episodes each month. Stay tuned for future episodes with Knife Fork Book, Hester Glock Press, Bear Bois, Ethel Zine, and Hem Press. I'm having such fun chatting with small presses that I might continue the theme into next year. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine.